getting on the same page with people and developing a coalition of people that think and speak the same language and then take that to the local government, which then can expand to the state government. So again, it comes back to the whole reason why we're Americans. We have the right to work together to create the laws that dictate how we function. And right now is a great time to really fire into that experiment relative to cannabis. You're listening to To Be Blunt, the podcast for cannabis marketers, where your host Shada Taravi and her guests are trailblazing the path to marketing, educating, and professionalizing cannabis. Light one up and listen up. Here's your host, Shada Taravi. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of To Be Blunt. I'm your host, Shada Tarabi, and today's guest isn't your typical marketing chat, but it has a lot of overlap with marketing, which is why I think it's an important subject to put on your radar. As you know, cannabis is not federally legal and as a new industry lacks standards that other industries like the automotive industry have already established. So it was through ASTM that I got connected to Carrie Black because I recently joined as a volunteer and Carrie is one of the chair members of the D37 Cannabis Committee. Now, ASTM is an organization that helps many different industries manage and establish standards, which Carrie will get into more about in the show, but the D37 Cannabis Committee was only recently founded in 2017, but their goal is to help develop standards for cannabis, its products, and processes. So if you're working in the industry and trying to create, market, and sell a product, Chances are it's going to cross one of the standards Carrie and his group at D37 are trying to set. The good news is anyone who has interest can join, and today's conversation dives into this discussion, so I hope you'll listen to the end and get inspired to get involved should you so choose. Welcome to the show, Carrie. My name is Carrie Black. I'm currently a consultant for the cannabis industry, but also for the food safety industry and basically trying to be a successful consultant in a post-COVID environment, which has its own challenges. One of my primary objectives is to see what role I can play in the standardization of the cannabis industry. So I'm gonna kind of focus maybe what I'm talking about relative to that. I'm a very active member in ASTM, which is probably one of the more, you know, one of the most premier standard bodies in the world, frankly. And with the D37 main committee on cannabis having been formed starting in 2017, we've had a tremendous opportunity to literally start writing standards for the industry. And the industry is obviously, as as most business owners know, in dire need of standardization. You can, for example, an analytical test, you can take a sample to one lab for the same test for the same desired outcome and get multiple different answers that are completely disparate from each other because of a lack of standardization. Now, if you think of the implications of that, you're selling products to what hopefully will be, um, you know, widespread human consumption. Now, if, if what you claim the product's chemistry is relative to their safety in that, if the data that you're presenting associated with that is not accurate, 
frankly, there is inserted a risk, you know, to the consumer and to your business relative to the safety of your product. And to that end, we're putting tremendous amounts of effort into standardizing test methods that not only are accurate and validatable, but also are affordable. You know, there's a lot of upstart businesses in the cannabis industry. And it may be Farmer Jack down the road with two acres of hemp and maybe stars in their eyes to rock and roll. And they may have a, a perfectly viable product paying $500 for a round of tests for each lot. Well, you know, that, that can be prohibitive. So recognizing that we're trying to kind of, and, and actually they're kind of oxymorons of each other, trying to make the best test results possible and the best test methods while trying to keep them affordable to everyone in the industry because many of the players are, you know, new people coming in and, and frankly, they don't have the capital behind them to um, rock and roll that they would otherwise had they had that capital. But again, it comes down to that standardization. So at ASTM, we're really trying to wrap our arms around, look at all the gaps in the industry that would be functionally benefited by having a standardized approach. And currently, currently I'm working um, as the chairman for D3706, which is the subcommittee on certification, accreditation, and training. And we've been putting forth standards, basically looking at every job somebody could have in the cannabis industry, whether it's a horticulturalist or a grower or a trimmer or a dryer or a bud tender or a quality manager or a cannabis lab manager. You know, the list goes on, as you can imagine. And then trying to define what would be the knowledge that you would want somebody to have if you were hiring someone for one of those and thereby start to standardize maybe job descriptions across all levels and we're we're negotiating with ASTM to hopefully put in a certification program where an individual could take a series of trainings take a test and get a piece of paper that says they're a, a certified dispensary technician or a, a certified cannabis quality technician or certified cannabis lab chemist or you know you can imagine the list goes on and on and it's people like you guys and and also the people at hemp tours lee and dan i know i've talked to them about this you guys actually contributing in the standard writing process to help us elucidate these body of knowledges and you know really at the end of the day it's it's collating collaboration with subject matter experts out there from all different backgrounds and that, but everybody, and the beauty of ASTM is it's a volunteer organization. So for me, any subject matter expert that reaches out that has some ideas about that, I'm all ears. In fact, I've got templates and say, here, here's a standard. Why don't you just go ahead and write it? I'll sponsor it and we'll get it through and, and maybe by increment help to standardize the industry. Now that's just within like a certification training thing. And I can see, incredible value for that, particularly in a fledgling industry where, you know, you, you, you go to GM and you want to be a quality engineer. Okay? The first thing in their job requirement says eight years of experience, blah, blah, blah. Right. Well, there's no eight years of experience in cannabis. Right. Right. And so we want everyone to have a shot at it. And so we're, we're really trying to introduce principles that make it accessible for everybody. And, 
you know, I, I believe strongly in educational credentials. Like if I hire a chemist, I'd like to think they have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Um, we're juggling that a little bit because a lot of sort of the state of art approaches in cultures like Asia and India and, and other elements like that, they're not so reliant on educational credentials as experiential credentials. And you might find chemists working in a, in a, a, a Thailand-based extractor plant that does not have a degree in chemistry. However, they've had an apprenticeship where they can do the chemistry, they understand it, they have the body of knowledge. And, and so then the question comes, why preclude them from that opportunity by putting rigid educational credentials in there? Well, I'm from a Western culture and I'm thinking, well, I don't want a chemist that doesn't have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to lessen my anthropocentric culturalism, recognizing that ASTM is a global standards body and these standards will be applicable. I did want to dive into what you were talking about with ASTM in terms of it's an established business that has a history and standardization, which I'll let you dive into specifically what ASTM is. But the application, I think, with the cannabis lens is this is a newer function that has only really been established in the past couple of years. And it's a volunteer effort. So everybody who's participating, like you're saying, you're leading these, you know, committees or these subcommittees. You mentioned Leah and Dan from Hemp Tours. Shout out to Leah and Dan. We have Leah, we had Leah on one of my very first episodes of this podcast, which was a really great episode. So hopefully people can go back and listen to that episode. She's based here in Austin with me. But that's kind of how I got connected to you was through Leah, because personally, I wanted to learn more about how I could help have a role in setting some standards for this industry. So to kind of create that pulse for people listening, I'm a business owner in the space. I'm very education forward. I also acknowledge that the industry is very immature. And so realizing that no standards are really set, it is the wild, wild west. And I think to close the gap on something you kind of were touching on between Western culture versus Eastern culture and kind of maybe their approach to this, you know, I remember in the early days of cannabis culture, there had been a few educational entity schools maybe that had popped up. I know Oaksterdam is a popular one. It's, you know, not maybe accredited. You're not getting a real degree in this, but it at least gave some parameters and structure for educating and making someone more knowledgeable about this plant. Then I think you have, you know, maybe in 2019, 2020, I started observing, and I know Leah also, and I have done the same program for the university of Northern Las Vegas has cannabis professional courses. So you're starting to see it's not an accredited course yet either. However, you're seeing it be brought into more mainstream or uh, more common in the traditional education category. And so it's kind of interesting where I think you and AST MSIT is standardizing it from an industry perspective, but also acknowledging it's not just the educational component because there really is nobody in an educational environment saying, hey, this is how you study cannabis chemistry. Hey, this is how you study cannabis extraction or you know, cannabis marketing. Like there's not a specific course at a university to my knowledge presently that gives somebody that degree, quote unquote. Actually there is. There is one. Northern Michigan University offers a bachelor's degree in the cannabis sciences. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So specifically on the science side though, right? Um, you know what, uh, Shada, I can't speak specifically on all the subject matter that it covers. But it isn't accredited. You can get the degree in it and it's, is it a master's or bachelor's? Again, or I, I don't know um, all the specifics to it, but I do know that they are. I, and I, at a minimum, I know that you can get a bachelor's. So cool. There's, you know, one university that's kind of championing, it sounds like that educational component. But I guess to come back to ASTM and to let you kind of dive into what its its true function and definition is, obviously there's a standardization gap right now in cannabis. And so I think people are looking to all these different pockets, whether it's traditional education, whether it's certificates and programming, ASTM seems to be another piece to that puzzle and helping produce some sort of baseline for how we all communicate about, you know, the professional side of the industry. Well, I can, I can comment on that and, um, and I'll share some more information about ASTM. That, that's the particular vehicle that I'm involved with relative to that. But as a business owner and as a producer of product that ultimately will find its way to human consumption, there are regulations, if you will. And the FDA has entire regulatory guidelines around protecting consumers relative to products that they consume. And there are different guidelines. And these, these can also be considered standards, if you will. What ASTM is trying to do is create the sort of internal documents that support the specifics of those guidelines. So we're, we're kind of working as well with the FDA to try to regulate the industry. And I know that's a lot of people think, oh, regulate the industry, that's bad, we can't be regulated. Well, we do need to be regulated because consumer health and safety is the paramount mission of, for example, the FDA. The EU GMP guidelines would be the sort of FDA equivalent for the European Union and governs a lot of international commerce. And all the guidelines look pretty similar. For example, right now I've been doing some work, what's called 21 CFR 117. And that's the series of guidelines that basically dictate food safety and what you may have heard of as FISMA, which is the Food Safety Modernization Act. And frankly, depending on what product you are selling for human consumption, you are required to be compliant with those guidelines. And that's not a, a trivial level of compliance. That means putting in very rigorous, supportive quality management systems with standard operating procedures and change control documentation, and essentially putting a quality management system in to realize those guidelines and building preventative control measures for areas where there could be risk to consumer, or what some people refer to as HACCP, which is Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point. You know, and, and for example, in the chicken industry, okay, with chicken meat that has a high propensity for forming salmonella. And so you may have to have a preventative control that requires a heat treatment that destroys the salmonella so that then you can proceed down line and make your canned chicken salad or what have you, but documentation that it's gone through that preventative step as a requirement. And then having the presence of quality management system to keep track of all that data now that's, right now we're kind of in a gray area relative to cannabis. Technically CBD by itself is still illegal and it's illegal to transport it across 
state lines for commerce. Okay. But you can buy CBD products all day long online, which is frankly in direct violation of the current status of that. And so the way to change that is what people are lobbying and working on is changing the schedule assignment from um, the DEA schedule rosters. And then at some point it can become or considered a food product. And right now it's acknowledged that it's kind of in a gray area. So the, the companies that take hits on that likely is not are um, companies that didn't play the politics of their region quite correctly and piss somebody off at a higher government state level and get a, get a, a slash back. I've seen that in a couple occasions. Um, so it creates, you're right, Wild West is a great way to describe it. But a lot of these standardization of the industry ultimately should bring the ability of the industry to easily, or at least much easier, easily come into alignment with those guidelines. And as the industry expands, those guidelines will be applied and there will be an expectation of compliance. That's where a lot of people don't, they don't understand really how the entire uh, human consumptive industry works in the United States. And hopefully through our standardization and, and our communications with people, we can really kind of create these programs that will allow people to step into those regulatory arenas with confidence and with understanding. And hopefully with standards that not only support those guidelines and compliance to those guidelines, but assure consumer health and safety at the end of that road. And that comes to the analytical methods. Really, you know, cannabis has an incredible propensity to suck up heavy metals from the soil that it's growing. And in fact, in some cases, it's actually used as an environmental remediating material to reduce lead or what have you in, in, in um, a field or soils or um, an EPA cleanup or what have you. Well, it's important that we have analytical methodology to define how much heavy metals is in our particular product because I know that several companies just within the last couple of weeks were shut down by the FDA for high lead in their product. They didn't know. And in fact, one of them had COAs from a third-party lab saying they were perfectly good to go. Guess what? Those COAs weren't worth a darn. And then it comes back to, well, what standard did that lab use? And were they ISO 17025 certified? Did they really know what the heck they were doing? Were their instruments calibrated? All those questions come into play. And those questions have been in play, you know, in the food industry for years. You think about 2008, where two affiliated companies had peanuts that I believe were contaminated with salmonella. And a lot of people died, literally died. And that really kicked up the regulatory notches in food safety and was likely one of the um, catalysts for spurring on the FISMA approach that, you know, basically that effort got started in 2011. The way the world is changing anyway, it comes again back to, and I'm going to always come back to this, standardization and understanding the standard, standardization, why we are standardizing. And, and really, a, a lot of people will, will say, well, I don't want government regulations, right? I mean, a lot of people are sort of politically not in that, that fold. I used to be one when my hair was a lot longer and I had, you know, back in my hippie days or whatever. <laughs> but, 
Um, right now, it's it's a matter of, of frankly protecting human lives, and and I managed the quality control lab at the Domino Sugar Refinery for five years in New Orleans, and um, you know we we refine eight million pounds of sugar a day on a twenty four seven basis, and my name went on the certificates of analysis for all that sugar, and it was for good reason. We we basically validated that yes, this is safe for human consumption. And nobody is going to get sick and nobody's going to die. And, you know, we had very, very well standardized test methods. And basically, it wasn't officially a 17025 accredited laboratory, but we followed those guidelines. So if we had a, if we wanted to pay the $30,000 to get that certification, we could have. We chose not to. We just chose to ran that lab in such a way that we could go to a court of law and defend our analytical results if we needed to, which we never did, which, and that's fine as well. But that, that whole aspect of standardization, again, I'm coming back to that. All business owners and all people that even are marketing these products need to have an awareness of that. You got to be careful in how you claim things. You know, a lot of people call CBD dietary supplements. And if you literally do marketing along that line, you are in violation of the law because there are no regulatory guidelines for CBD to be classified as a dietary, dietary supplement. And the FDA will, will definitely have, be knocking on your door if you're marketing under those kind of premises. So even as a marketer, a brand marketer, it's important that you understand what the legal status is. And frankly, that status is changing. I mean, I just got an update. Last week, the FDA put out their proposed guidelines for running clinical trials for cannabis products. Now, that's huge and that's beautiful because these things come incrementally, right? So now they're saying, well, let's take a critical look at actually putting guidelines and doing clinical trials, which, you know, basically opens the door for bigger sources of R&D cannabis. Right now they're, you can you can certify to use R&D cannabis, but you have to get it from the University of Mississippi. And that they're the only ones that, unless that's changed, they have been the only ones that can provide cannabis for research purposes where it's all legal and everything. I didn't even know that. That's very fascinating. They're the only... They have been, yes. And, and unfortunately, and I've... I've dealt with a lot of people that have a lot of, um, that are working in trying to set up clinical trials for all these wonderful medical applications that have been proposed and somewhat flirted with and actually seem amenable to initiate trials where trials have been initiated using that particular university's product. Apparently there is a lot of complaints as to the quality of that and that being a single source. Well, if you're going to do a clinical trial for some medicinal application, frankly, your raw materials that are playing in that trial need to be premier and there should be no issue with quality. So guidelines like this, and it's actually up for comment right now. And I can send you a copy of it and, encourage you and people that you know of who have a vested interest, the FDA is taking comments on that. And typically there'll be a meeting and there'll be an assessment and people will round up. I know that ASTM 
there's there's a group of a group of folks that are literally working on a response, a critical response to that. And and the FDA listens. They listen to the people in the industry, you know, so that all the best can come from it, right? And and there's no particular conflict of interest or no particular monopoly. They they want to do it right as well. But they're going to make sure that those clinical trials give good data and that how the raw materials are handled or within the scope of the law. It shouldn't be long after that that maybe some, it's hard to say with an upcoming presidential election and how, how the, you know, the DEA may be motivated by legislation to change the scheduling. It's really hard to say, but when some of that kind of dies down and gets resolved, I would expect to see a similar guidance come out for use of CBD as dietary supplements and as a food substance. And then basically those guidelines would be up for comment relative to cannabis as applied to those different areas. The beauty is now is the time to really make a lot of noise and, and really start setting up sort of the subtle infrastructure to really tweak the industry and to get it ready to go down that path. Whether you like that path or whether you don't like that path, as long as that's right, our government functions the way it functions, that is the path that human consumables will be affected by. So position yourself as best as you can. And the more standardized the approaches are, the better it will dovetail into that carpentry process, if you so anyway, that's that's my, I'm going to quit preaching now. No, I, I love that. And I want to kind of come around to another I, part of the topic that you were addressing around, you know, the industry is moving towards regulation, whether we like it or not. And speaking from my own personal experience, you know, purchasing cannabis products outside of a legal market, there was no what's in my product? What am I getting? I was just buying weed. I didn't, I, I just wanted, you know, the output of being high or stone, which I do personally enjoy that effect, but there was no education. There was no understanding. I, you know, even as it went from this kind of black market to opening up the recreational markets in states like Colorado, I remember going to dispensaries and never being presented a certificate of analysis, never really asking or inquiring for these things. But I think as you see cannabis become more widespread, especially with the CBD and hemp market, I think really opening up this, this wormhole of whoa, you know, we're not just selling pot to people anymore. This is a really serious industry and it needs this attention. And so I, I think that's where consumers, as well as these business owners who are coming into the space, just are really kind of not aware, like myself included. I've never, like I said, asked for a certificate of analysis as a marijuana consumer, but as a CBD consumer, that is becoming the norm to expect that. And then to even step back further from that, my understanding, which I, it sounds like is accurate, is because there's no standardization when it comes to testing, even testing within a state, there are still discrepancies on how the machines are calibrated. What are they testing for? What is the material at? What stages the material need to be in? And so I think that is producing these inconsistent experiences, which to your point and punctuation, it's really to benefit the consumer from a health perspective. We want to make sure that the products that they are purchasing deliver on what not only they're supposed to do, but from a health perspective, make sure that it's actually healthy for you to be consuming and putting in your body and 
just on the point alone of how, you know, it's a beautiful thing that hemp is so absorbent. But I think the counter to that is, unfortunately, it can absorb some negative chemicals and pesticides and heavy metals. And then that's an extra precaution for the brand who's extracting, or if the brand is purchasing from somebody who else is extracting, they need to be aware and know those things are pieces that they need to address or be conscious of. And so it's just, I think everything you're saying, I'm personally benefiting from. So I know that the audience is going to get some great tips on what to be thinking of because it, like you said, it's just, it's changing very fast. And then from a city to city, state to state level, it's further fractured. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's, it's pretty crazy. And I was kind of laughing about that. Of course, with the farm bill of 2018, hemp became legal, if you will. Well, what's hemp, right? It's cannabis sativa. What's marijuana? It's cannabis sativa. You know, there's some other subspecies, if you will, and that, but at the end of the day, you have a plant that's half legal and half not legal. And it all depends on the amount of THC that is present in that plant. And if it's less than 0.3 weight percent, it's legal. If it's not, then it's not. But the cannabinoids are still illegal. So here you have a plant that's like fractionally legal depending on where you're at. Again, the Wild West. Again, lack of standardization. I know, it all points back to just the very reality of like, like we just, I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. Oh, absolutely. And really trying to rein in order from chaos. quick break to say thank you to Restart CBD for sponsoring this podcast. Restart CBD is a brand my sisters and I founded in our hometown in Austin, Texas. We operate a retail location as well as an e-commerce store, and you can browse our wide range of CBD products at restartcbd.com. Again, thank you to Restart for allowing me the time and resources to put on To Be Blunt. I hope you'll check them out for your CBD needs. Let's go back to the episode. I don't know. It's, I guess it's a battle that's not for the faint of heart. And so we just, we try to leverage, you know, every opportunity we get again to have people understand and help out with the standardization process. And that's on a state to state starting out at even just a local level. I, I know I, I have the privilege to sit on the marijuana review board for the state of Colorado. And of course they've had the legal programs and they've got, you know, some pretty good regulatory type approaches and they're standardizing their approach as best they can and working very closely with ASTM. So that's kind of cool. I'd like if I could do anything and, and maybe it's people like you that could help me with that. I'd like to maybe try to convince every state legislature that is dealing in some way with cannabis, regardless of what level, to basically solicit how valuable it would be to farm marijuana or cannabis review boards within the constraints of their current status filled with subject matter expertise that understand this kind of a global perspective. I'd love to start seeing what we could do about maybe getting in front of the Texas state legislature. And I'm sure Leah and, and Dan have thoughts along those lines, and I'm sure you as well. And we may talk about maybe seeing what we could do about showing the successes of that board in Colorado to 
stakeholders at the legislative level in other states to see if we can maybe increase expansion there, because really that's where we're going to start having an effect in terms of legislative actions and opening these doors and allowing that standardization to start to, you know, blossom, if you will. Well, I think people are a little afraid of, just to add, I think people are afraid of this consistency. It's a little bit people want their, you know, their proprietary idea, but at the same time, if we're all in our own silos, not standardizing, not communicating, not agreeing on some base level, this is what is right, this is what is wrong, then I don't think you're really going to see the industry flourish. And I think that you're seeing that kind of happen with each state having, I mean, they're surely California and Colorado are learning from each other, but they're both very different setups. And because it lacks standardization, it's almost sometimes like, are we talking about the same thing? And, and maybe there's going to always be some difference. I think difference is good, but I do agree in some sort of standardization where I know speaking from a Texas perspective, I mean, just to keep highlighting what Leah and Daniel are doing, I think Leah has been a great resource for us because it's somebody who I know is caring about the same thing that I care about, which is to educate consumers and give them confidence with this really incredible plant. Like I want people to know of its greatness. And I also want people to realize, you know, just the state that it's in. And so I think when you're trying to educate consumers while also educating yourself, it's hard to know who can I relate to? Who, who also is getting educated in the same way with the same information that I'm getting educated. And so again, Leah has been really helpful for us from a business perspective, just to be a resource of someone who at least between her and I, and our kind of small community here in central Texas, it's, we're speaking the same language, you know? And then I think that pours into, which I do want to get into, you know, ASTM's involvement. I mean, i I'm not as involved as you, but I want to continue to lean into being as involved as possible. I do think it's important if you are a brand in the space, if you have skin in the game, it's not just, okay, I'm here to make a cannabis product and cash out. It, it does, I think, require you to honor the industry and honor the growth of this plant by stepping forward into whether it's creating these standardizations, setting up a board, being a part of a board, submitting comments and volunteering into organizations like ASTM to help with standardization. Like, I just think there's so many options. We're members of Texas Normal, like get involved to help have a seat at the table. So you're all communicating on the same thing versus where I think the industry before was like, oh, well, those people are doing something over there and I don't want to tell them how I'm doing it. I'm just going to let them keep marketing or not getting their products tested a certain way. It was all like, this is my secret and my, you know, privacy. And now I really think that's honestly like part of why I personally wanted to launch this podcast was let's get on the same page. Let's talk about it. I agree. And, and really to that point, at the end of the day, there will be regulations put in place that dictate how you run your business. And just ask yourself the question, do I want to play a role in what I'll be doing or do I just want to be told what I'm doing? And if there's an opportunity to literally play a role, which is happening and which is happening more and more, then darn it, get out there and play a role. And it's kind of like my, my dad used to, like if I was complaining about the president and my dad said, did you vote? I said, well, no. He said, well, I don't want to hear it. You have nothing to complain about it. Right? Same idea. 
we all have the power to actually influence and especially now in this burgeoning industry it starts at the local level and it extends to the state level and then to the federal level and then to the global level believe it or not um, and really trying to get it all on the same page is you know it's it's basically defining careers um <laughs> hopefully <laughs> but um anyway so no your point's really well taken you don't have to divulge confidential or intellectually proprietary information to be able to participate in a process relative to what future regulations might become. You know, having expertise and understanding where maybe weaknesses are that could be addressed. You don't have to, you know, it's not going to divulge confidential kind of stuff. As you said, getting on the same page with people and developing a coalition of people that think and speak the same language and then take that to the local government, which then can expand to the state government. So again, it comes back to the whole reason why we're Americans. We have the right to work together to create the laws that dictate how we function. And right now is a great time to really fire into that experiment relative to cannabis. And I'm kind of excited about it from that perspective. It makes me feel patriotic. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. I think it's a beautiful opportunity that we have to bring more awareness and education to this plant and to help have a hand in changing, you know, its legal status. And hopefully through this process, not only provide standards, but really get full research done so that we can hopefully remove it from the schedule one list and give it proper access and it's just a really exciting time like you said to be in cannabis and again i emphasize this i feel like every episode but hopefully people really take it to heart it's it's what you said you know you can be the recipient of the regulations or you can help be someone who's driving that and so you kind of had touched on and i want to dive into this last point before we wrap up but you know, when there's open public comments, whether it's participating in ASTM, which I will ask you to share with everybody how they could get involved because it is open to anybody in the cannabis and beyond industry who wants to contribute. But you mentioned, you know, these open comment periods by the FDA. I know that Texas just issued the smokable ban and there had been multiple public comments for the Department of Safety and Health Services to hear from not only business owners or people in the industry, but consumers as well. And I think that's something that I personally try to champion is get involved. Like you said, on a local level, on a state level, on a national level and beyond, like there's different organizations and ways for you to contribute and to make your voice and your opinion heard. And it is really exciting. I think personally, when I was first getting into cannabis, I was a little bit more reserved because, you know, does what I believe stack up to what everybody else believes? But as I kind of kept pushing through the industry, I realized we're all learning together. And that's why my voice is equally as important as somebody else's voice, because together it's those opinions that are coming and forming what is, you know, that new standard. And so it, it's, I know I've, I've been a member of ASTM for a very brief amount of time, but even just observing the practice and the communication and the cadence for how these conversations are happening, it's very collaborative and I know that it's a small role I get to play in helping establish some of that standardization. So actually it's as big a role as you want. Technically. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of work to write a standard and it's a lot of work to get it through the process 
but the networking that goes on is you're working with the best of the best in the industry that share that passion and it's volunteers. So the more you want to do ASTM sits back and says, how can we help you? And so to that point, as big a role as anyone wants, they can find within that arena. And I can just talk about that real quickly a little bit. Please, please. ASTM was founded in 1898. And basically what happened is in the course of the 19th century, we were building railroads all across the country. And somebody realized, well, guess what? That gauge is this and that gauge is this. And we found we had literally dozens of different rail gauges which would preclude use of the whole system, right, at the same time. So it was founded in order to standardize railroad gauges, allow for, you know, the same width between the rails so that the trains that were manufactured were manufactured with the same width wheels and so forth, right? That was sort of the beginning of that. It was very successful. Um, it, It basically initiated the Industrial Revolution through, you know, viable transportation standardization. Then it expanded through the Industrial Revolution, basically creating um, different standards. Originally, the organization was called American Society for Testing Materials. That's what ASTM stands for. That name, however, more recently was basically thrown in the trash and they kept the initials ASTM it changed to ASTM International and basically holding on to the acronym, but not defining a specific meaning for it because no longer was it American, it was international, right? So that's why you see ASTM International and sometimes have a hard time finding what ASTM stands for. That was in 2001 that that change occurred. And since then, you know, ASTM has expanded its role in, in the global industries we, we literally work directly with the United Nations and we were acknowledged by the UN as the premier international standard body. Currently, ASTM has over 140 technical committees and these, each technical committee governs some aspect of industry, right? And that's D37 happens to be the technical committee with cannabis. And there's 139 other technical committees spanning every industry that you could ever think of and with people and subject matter matter experts writing standards pertinent to those different technical committees. And and so, you know, there's essentially lots of people involved, um, lots of governments involved, the UN's involved. And so that kind of helps with the, um, you know, the advancement of the thing. I was just looking at some different stuff here. So given the scope of that, um, if I take you to the formation of D37, which is the Cannabis Main Committee, it was founded in 2017. And currently, currently, there are multiple subcommittees within that main category. O1 is indoor and outdoor horticulture and agriculture. That's looking at cultivation standards. O2 is quality management systems. These are standards that support the GMP and the FISMA and those regulatory um, entities that I was referring to er- earlier. There's D3703, which is laboratory. And these are the people that are uh, publishing the test methods. How, how do you determine potency? How do you determine pesticides? How do you determine metals and stuff? And coming up with those standardized approaches. 
there's processing and handling, which looks at packaging and labeling and, and those things, standardizing those approaches, security and transportation, personal training, assessment, and credentialing. That's the one I, that's my subcommittee that I alluded to earlier. And there's a specific committee on industrial hemp, looking at specific hemp issues, particularly since of the advent of the farm bill. And it not only looks at consumable hemp, but at you know, industrial hemp, fibers, hempcrete, et cetera, et cetera. There's a new one, cannabis devices and appliances. It looks at standardization of delivery devices, your, your vapes, what kind of protective standards are, are out there. And then the executive and terminology. But those basically present the subset of subcommittees that make up D37. And I'm sure everyone listening out there heard one that kind of speaks their name. Um, relative to how they might want to or can contribute. If anyone ever, you know, has a desire to explore that further, feel free to contact me and I can steer you in the right direction. So we have these subcommittees. Now we identify, well, what standards um, do we need to write? And we decide, okay, we need to write a standard on doing a potency analysis with uh, Headspace GC or we need to do a pesticide analysis with um, liquid chromatography, tandem mass spec, whatever, you know, I mean, and, and then subject matter experts get assigned to that and they go forth and they do the standard. For test methods, they have to go through a validation process to make sure that they work. They have to go through a precision and bias assessment to make sure that, you know, the, the precision and the accuracy of the method makes it viable you know, as a reporting entity for the industry. And then whatever standards. So say Shada wants to write a standard on credentialing or uh, what are the job vocations for a dispensary technician? Okay, so Shada would take out a work item. Work item, number, 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 number one. You can form a task group to that point and invite other subject matter expertises to come in and sit down and work through the aspects of the standard that you want to communicate. And then you write the standard. So now you have a document that reflects the standard that you wrote that's referenced against that preliminary work item number. That then goes to ballot. And when it goes to ballot, that means it goes out to the whole community to read it and to say, well, I like this part. I don't like this part. Take this part out and et cetera, et cetera. And the, and what the voters can do is they can basically write a negative against it, they can write an affirmative, or they can abstain. And you can apply comments on all those. If you write a negative, you absolutely have to supply a comment because you have to say why you're voting negative on it. Any standard that has a negative vote will never be published until that negative is resolved. And they can be resolved in several ways. There can be discussions, there can be agreements that whatever that negative purports to will be incorporated in a subsequent ballot. At any rate, it goes through this iterative process until everybody in the community agrees that the standard works and is viable. And 47 years later, <laughs> I was being facetious, um, it, can, it can take a while, but it can go through three, four evolutions and iterations resolving the negatives and making sure that what product you have at the end of that is consensus-based across the entire D37 membership. 
And there you have close to a thousand people in that membership. And they're all subject matter experts. So if you got a thousand subject matter experts saying, you know what, this standard is works, it's good, you can kind of bet you got a really good standard that has been basically blessed by the community. And and so that is a very quick summary of, of that entire process. And it's a beautiful process. And I was just telling someone earlier today, it's beautiful because it really brings out the consensus nature. And it's not so beautiful because there's tremendous amounts of negotiation and, and sometimes time that goes in between balloting events and really negotiating with people to get them on the same page. And so that's kind of the, the whole perspective about ASTM. The beauty of that is because of all that is probably one of the primary reasons that it's considered maybe the premier standard the entity that exists on a global level. And so to be able to play a part in it, play a role, you know, starting from your sphere of influence and being able to literally contribute to that really goes in alignment with everything that we've been talking about relative to seeing where our place is in the industry and seeking out like minds on a local and community level, your task group level, to draw an, um, an analogy, and then building bigger consensus, the subcommittee level, state legislation level, okay, and then expanding that up to the main committee level, state legislation. I'm just, I mean, I'm using those sort of in, in an analogous set of hierarchies to basically try to explain that process. If that made any sense, that, I've never used that particular set of analogies before, but it sounded good. <laughs> it made total sense. And I think to kind of sum it up to just creating that perspective and that image that you shared of when ASTM really was first established and having the emphasis on, you know, standardizing railroad tracks and thinking of that industry and how much it's been around and how far we've come from those early days and just seeing the industrial revolution happen and now being able to apply this same kind of approach to what we both know is a very high profit industry that is very, very immature and has a lot on the line still in terms of sorting out the consumer market, as well as the efficacy of the products and everything that kind of falls in between. And so I just, I hope people get excited from this episode. I know that it, you're very knowledgeable. And so it's a little bit more technical, but I think you did a good job articulating the, the main purpose, obviously of standardization. And then here's all this kind of like stuff around it that goes into it. And and obviously it isn't just like, you know, you submit something and people agree and like a switch, it gets implemented. I mean, this is really the ground work being laid in our industry. Absolutely. And the exciting part is we can have a seat at the table. You can. You can have a seat at the table. If anyone is interested and wants, you know, maybe some introductions into the different subcommittees or Need more about ASTM, I'm sure you'll put maybe my webpage or my email up that people can reach out and be happy to um, help out. The more people we have participating, the stronger our standards become. And and that's at every level of participation. And so I, I can't say enough about the importance of that. Every journey begins with one step. And 
regardless of where that journey is going. We may be looking at the what I call the agricultural revolution and likening that to the industrial revolution, you know, the cannabis revolution. Maybe that's more appropriate. That is our future. I believe it. <laughs> but I really appreciate, really appreciate you allowing me the opportunity to talk about the idea of standardization and that. And again, I'm happy to be a resource for anyone out there that wants more information or wants, you know, the right contacts to get involved or the specifics or so forth. I'm happy to, accommodate that. Again, I know that wasn't your typical marketing talk, but this isn't your typical marketing show. And this industry is brand new. So we have a lot of gaps as an industry that we need to fill. So as marketers, we can do our jobs. I joined ASTM because I wanted to have a seat at the table and help contribute to the standardizations of this industry. There are a few different subcommittees under D37 Cannabis, so you can find one that resonates with your particular experience or brand and go from there. But Carrie is a great resource and loves to help people get involved in ASTM, so take him up and connect with him directly if you have any questions. As for me, I'm always here for you too. Please let me know if you have anyone who you think would make a good guest for the show. I aim to continue to make this a valuable hour for you. So let me know what's working, what's not, and how we can continue to grow and talk about marketing cannabis together. So let's keep the conversation going until the next episode. Bye. Love this episode of To Be Blunt? Be sure to visit theshadatarabi.com slash to be blunt for more ways to connect. New episodes come out on Mondays. And for more behind the scenes, follow along on Instagram at theshadatarabi.com.